Let's travel together. There's a Trav Market Media Network podcast for your commute, dog walk, or dinner prep time. Find more at travmarketmedia.com. Hi, it's Megan, host of Travel Radio Podcast, a proud member of the Trav Market Media Podcast Network. Would you take a moment now to like, subscribe, and review the podcast? You can also reach me at info at travelradiopodcast.com, or you could reach the network at travmarketmedia.com. Travel professional or aspiring professional traveler. I'm so thankful you tuned in. Now, let's dig into where our ears will travel today. Hello, and welcome to Travel Radio Podcast. Today, I'd like to introduce a new guest to you. Today's guest is Nigel Hetherington. Nigel, welcome to the program, and would you take a minute to introduce yourself to the listeners? Hello. Uh, nice to be talking with you. Um, yes, yeah, so Nigel Hetherington, I'm... An archaeologist. I like to think I'm still an archaeologist, an Egyptologist, um, but mainly these days I'm involved in the media, so I classify myself as a casting agent and a producer. Um, I live between um, Egypt part of the time, uh, Cairo, and um, in the Lake District here in England, where I am at the moment, uh, hiding away from the virus. Um, mm, that's a good place to choose. Yeah, I decided I'd want somewhere where you know society is going to end up. Um, going a bit odd that I wanted to be somewhere calm. Yes, well, I think they're all probably making their way to you right now, so <laughs> maybe not the right choice. I don't know. Probably. So if people want to follow along or find you online, where can they do that? Um, our website is pastpreservers.com. Um, basically, that you know gives all the information about what we do. Um, we're essentially media consultants, I like to say, but uh, we position ourselves between academia and the media world. So um, anything our experts can do to help the media, we try to facilitate that relationship. Um, so on the website, you'll see jobs that we have that are coming up on, on TV shows and, and other media outlets. Um, you can register so that you receive um, updates. You can get tips on, on how to register and, and make your video and things like that. And also see all the projects that we've done. I think we're just close to 60 projects over the last 12 years. So yeah, it's it's growing. So now we are going to tie this into travel because people should be excited about the country of Egypt, its rich history, the culture, the archaeology, and Travel agents should want to specialize and get trained in this country, and tourists should want to invest their dollars in this country, and it's worth doing. And I think that your background uniquely pairs us from the historical, cultural, archaeological background right into travel because of some of the work you've done in the country and some of the projects you have coming up in the future. So would you take a moment to introduce <laughs> your background and beginnings of your work in Egypt to us? Well, my story with Egypt really began um, as a tourist, as a visitor. Um, it was one of the places as a child, you know, one of these uh, that you always want to visit, a bucket list, you would say now. But um, I always wanted to go, and I had the opportunity way back, I think it was in 1997, the first time, and I was going to go with a friend, and in those days I didn't really 
I rarely traveled very far without family or friends or, or partners and things. So I was going with a friend to Egypt and they actually changed their mind at the last minute. And in the end, I did go, I went on my own and I, I had such a wonderful time. I had an amazing time. Um, and I immediately I got back, I booked another trip and I booked actually uh, my partner at the time and we went back uh, for a longer trip to see more. But I think the thing that hit me more than anything arriving in the country, apart from the heat, of course, was this just the preservation. Uh, I Even though I'd seen the pictures in the books, obviously, and seen the TV shows and everything, I think when you actually see all these temples along the Nile and the pyramids and the rest of it in the Valley of the Kings, etc., it really does just take your breath away. Um, it's astounding preservation. Um, and um, so when I came back, I actually signed up for an evening class at Birkbeck, the university, part of the University of London, and started studying again, which I loved. And um, I was encouraged to do, I had a wonderful professor, she really pushed me to start writing essays again and, and this kind of thing. And in a long story, uh, I ended up going back to university um, in 2000 to study Egyptian archaeology at the Institute of Archaeology at UCL, London, um, University of London. And um, I loved it. I was there for almost six years. I did a, a BA and a, and a master's there. Um, and it was just an amazing time. I was 35 years old and people said, you know, oh, my God, what are you going to do? <laughs> with We'll be right back. A quick message from our sponsor. <laughs> With a degree in archaeology, uh, you know, in Egyptology. And I was like, well, I haven't really thought that far. But I knew that I wanted to do something different. And I'd been an accountant for 15 years. Oh, my goodness. You chose such a different choice <laughs> of study. Good for you. So I just, my mother actually said, you know, couldn't you get much further in the syllabus? Because I went from accountancy to archaeology. She was like, did you get stuck in the A's or what? <laughs> um, but I just knew I needed to do something. There was a, a chapter in my life, you know, when th things all come together and um, or things don't come together. Things were moving apart, in fact. So I decided that I needed to do something different. And I was really lucky and in my connections to Egypt and how I started working there, because obviously, you know, part of studying is one thing, but actually getting the job ultimately um, is the difficult thing. And um, by a kind of, I really do kind of believe in sort of, you know, twists of fate and little, uh, little things, little. Oh, yes. Changes. Sorry. I'm there. I believe you. I'm, I'm with you. I mean, what is it, that, that film, the, the sliding doors thing, right? It really is like you go left, you go right, and things really change. And because of a, a friend of mine, she's still a friend of mine, she wanted, when we chose our master's um, uh, thesis, I wanted to do a whole thing on the conservation of the pyramid site and like how it's you know the most difficult site to manage how it's 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 been you know people have tried to manage it literally for millennia and and got it horribly wrong and it's a very very difficult site and it's such an iconic site and she said oh i was gonna do that and i was like oh okay okay you do that i'll do the valley of the kings and there started this love affair with the Valley of the Kings and, and, and 10 years of uh, working there. Um, and luckily I had, um, there was a, 
fantastic Egyptologist. He's still alive, um, Dr. Kent Weeks. He was working there. He still works there. And I got in touch with him while I was at college. I sent him uh, my outline of my thesis, and he was very, very um, supportive and helpful and said, come and chat to me when you're in Cairo next. Um, and I went to meet him, and we got talking about what, what, what he was doing, and he was trying uh, to literally map the Valley of the Kings. Bizarrely, back in you know, 2003, there wasn't a concise map or a detailed map of the entire site. So, But everyone you know, had specialized in their particular area. There were lots of details of particular tombs but nothing that kind of mapped the entire site. So, that, you know, one of the first things you kind of learn uh, in conservation and site management, which I specialized in in my master's, is that you need to know what you have, right? You need to have an inventory. You can't protect anything unless you have an inventory. So Dr. Weeks, had literally, when I met him um, in the Nile Hilton for a beer, he had just come from the Ministry of Antiquities, or it was the Ministry um, of Culture then, that ran the Department of Antiquities. And he said, look, they want me to produce a master plan for the Valley of the Kings, because there was no master plan for any site in the whole country. And he said, there's a big push from UNESCO and the rest of the world, you know, to, to have these master plans, which are essentially sort of um, management plans of a site, you know, and conservation plans. Um, yes, said, so I saw that on LinkedIn because I stalked you because that's what every good interviewer would do. <laughs> and um, and I read most of it through. And you built that specifically for both natural elements, but for tourism, because how do you manage this thing with people crawling all over it? So would you explain to us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, once UNESCO decided that if you wanted to stay on the um, World Heritage List, you needed to have a site management plan. Um, most sites around the world started to, you know, actively get involved in, in having these plans. Um, they are essentially, like I said before, they're, they're really, you know, you address um, the issues that are, are, are causing a problem with the site. So you look at any kind of, you know, critical uh, factors and that can be natural. So the natural environment, I mean, these things are not always, you know, being damaged just by tourism or by human intervention. The natural world has an effect. I mean, the Valley of the King suffers, uh, has suffered um, from flash flooding, it's suffered from earthquake damage, um, you know, uh, infestation by animals, that kind of thing. Uh, so you have that element. So you, you you kind of stack up all your problems on one side. So tourism is part of that and the management of the site. And then you try and look at the mitigation. But what we did, which was the first uh, for Egypt, and we had the full backing of, of the antiquity service. They were, they were very good on this. We did a... Um, a site sort of a consultation. Now we did that. We hired um, the Social Research Center of Cairo University. They helped us do the actual survey. But we interviewed people, all the what they call the stakeholders. You know, everyone who's involved in the site. And what was a big first for Egypt as well was the fact that we interviewed the staff that work there, and not just the management, but everyone, right down to the cleaners. You know, every single person that worked there, because they understand how the actual site works uh, on a micro level. And the information they gave was amazing. And also it was the first time anyone had asked them. People didn't ask them. Egypt's a very hierarchical 
impacted society. You know, it really is. And so, you know, people, managers make decisions. You know, they don't consult with people below. Um, so we interviewed tour guides. We interviewed the tourists. You know, it's a really comprehensive uh, stakeholder assessment. That was kind of part of what we did. I mean, the whole project was was a, a, um, a sort of three to six year project that we the, that we undertook. Um, you know, and it's it's re- I'm so proud of it. I mean, I, I said I was very lucky to to get offered the job. Uh, Doctor Weeks had just been tasked with producing this master plan. I was studying at UCL, so I was studying how to do master plans. So he thought it was, I was a perfect person to partner with him to do it. And we got on very well as well. That was the thing. So we were, you know, we um, we immediately had a lot in common. And so we, I moved to Egypt. That's when I moved in 2003. Um, and I was there really in May, most of the time for the next 15 years after that. So what kind of sunscreen did you use during that time? Or was it just like uh, a lot. all of the sunscreen? And, uh, yeah. And um, big hats and things and stuff. It's a weird thing is when I always used to when I used to come back for Christmas and stuff. I mean, family would always say, "Oh, you're not very brown," and that was always the stock answer I got from everyone. It was like, "Well, you know, in Egypt, most people don't actually just sit, don't sit in the sun unless you're on holiday. You're not going to sit sit by a pool." Um, and we obviously spent a lot of time in offices, and we spent a lot of time in tombs, um, and not necessarily. Uh, in the sun so I'd always have a, maybe a brown neck and one brown arm or something uh, but, but that was about it um, but yeah that was my that's how it started and I, I actually got an apartment in the downtown area of Cairo which was then the university the American University which the Theban Mapping Project is affiliated with their campus was downtown, um, right in the heart of, of Cairo. So my apartment was literally, the, uh, you know, like being in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. Um, it was amazing, absolutely amazing experience. Awesome. Well, I don't want to say like I'm proud on your behalf, but I am very thankful that projects like this are successful. <laughs> Because, you know, sometimes sometimes things tourists do are very cringeworthy, but they don't even know maybe that they're doing something that they shouldn't do. Like in an art gallery where the path on the floor is actually a display or a sculpture, but people don't know. So I'm thankful for clear plans like this that are successful that help us all be better tourists when we're visiting. It is. I found, though, even all the years we, you know, worked there, there are people who cause damage, of course, some deliberately and everything. Most people don't cause the damage deliberately, don't cause problems. And when it's pointed out to them in an intelligent way that what they're doing isn't having an effect, they adjust their behavior. So you can, you know, educate people to, to understand. It's no good just banning things. It's no good just saying you can't take a picture or you can't do this. You have to explain why. You know, if you say why you can't touch, you put information boards up. And if you show people what's happened before and after to scenes that, are, you know, are painted reliefs, for instance, that have been touched, they're shocked. They're really shocked. And, um, you know, a, major- a lot of people who come to the Valley of the Kings particularly understand it as, a, you know, a sacred place, a very special place. And, and they treat it accordingly. Um, it's very difficult to do that with mass tourism it's very difficult to have you know what we refer to as a sense of place really um and that is lost and that can be anything from like you know visiting vatican and and also any all sorts of tourist uh, sites around the world when there's so many people 
um, it's very difficult to um, to sort of understand where you are. Um, which is interesting now, of course, now that we have so few tourists around the world and so few people traveling. You're seeing, I'm seeing lots of posts from people who are visiting places or are working in places. And they're saying they're seeing it in a different light for the first time. You know, they're experiencing it totally differently um, because it isn't full of thousands of people. Yes, I recently saw on a program, I don't remember exactly which one, but somewhere in Italy where the local peoples were wanting to get out and experience their own communities because there were no tourists, so they thought, why not? And then while visiting their local cathedrals or churches or whatever it was, they were describing having these actual spiritual moments because mm-hmm. there was no distraction no, by, you know, just extra people or noises or anything like that. So I'm hopeful for these type of plans and that it can spread people out and that we can all experience the attractions more fully. One of the things that we tried to do in in the Valley of the Kings, but also in, in Egypt generally, Egypt, you know, majority of its tourism, people go there once. They don't go again. There is a lot of people who return and return and return. It's sort of the uh, people, it gets under a lot of people's skin and they go back a lot. But in the main, tourists visit once. and It is a, um, a bucket list destination. And so people think they've seen everything because they've seen the, the Giza pyramids, because they've been to the Valley of the Kings and a couple of temples. So I think one of, one of the... Um, challenges for Egypt is to convince people to return and to convince people there is so much more. Um, and Well, all right, Nigel, let's do that. Let's give them a reason to go today. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, cultural tourism-wise, obviously, the thing is to, to see as much, not as much, sorry, to see as many different sort of uh, cultural um, places, I would say. So, if you're going on the first visit, you know, I think you should definitely, you know, go and see some wonderful mosques. You should go and see a pyramid. You should definitely go and visit one of the fantastic archaeological museums. But why not, while you're there, pop into the train museum or the stamp museum um, or actually walk downtown and discover, you know, the Art Deco buildings of Cairo. Oh, I did not know there was Art Deco. I love Yeah, Art Deco. it has a fabulous collection of, of Art Deco and, and Belle Epoque uh, buildings, which um, sadly are not in too good condition. But there is uh, a big movement to restore downtown and... Uh, the young of Egypt particularly are, are very passionate about preserving the different um, eras of Egypt's history and not just having, you know, this sort of monoculture. You, I think often tourism bodies tend to think, oh, you, all people want to see is the pharaohs, right? That's all they want to do. And there's so much more. I mean, the early Christianity, um, you know, is incubated in Egypt. So, I mean, sites in, in the Sinai and the monasteries, amazing. We used to stop on the way to Luxor. We would go that way when we went to Luxor rather than going the, down the Nile Road. And we would often stop at a monastery overnight. And they're just amazing places, very spiritual. Even for someone who is a non-believer, these places are, are, are wonderful, you know, obviously in the mountains and and the... Um, the monks often, you know, make their own food and have their own beehives for honey and this kind of thing. Um, idyllic um, um, lifestyle. 
Um, and then you have, you know, these amazing Red Sea resorts. I go to a place, um, I try to go every year. Um, there's a, a site, um, a resort called El Guna, uh, which is outside of Haggadah. And it's really not that well known to foreign visitors. It's very popular with um, Egyptians. And it's quite small. It's a purpose-built town. It's a sort of, you know, fake town in a, in a way. But it's beautifully done. It's very well designed by one particular um, 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 building company. Oroscon built it. And so it's all done in it's in different styles, but it's all been built at the same time. It's a bit like, you know, that sort of Port Merion type thing in England, uh, but on a much, much bigger scale. Um, but it's it's incredibly beautiful uh, location um, on the Red Sea, you know. And if you're into diving or um, you know kite surfing and all this sort of thing, there's there is so many different elements to Egypt. Uh, mm, that's really interesting because I don't think about those things when I think about Egypt because I guess the pyramids and the Valley of the King are so like the images are so prevalent mm. on social media or advertising campaigns. Yeah. So it's really interesting to think about combining a trip with the traditional things with maybe some alternative options that you wouldn't have normally thought about. So that's yeah, really good tips. I think that's the one of the good things with with a trip to Egypt, say if you went for a couple of weeks, you can combine the different centers. You know what I mean? I would not you know, if you're in Cairo for two or three days most tourists only spend a couple of days in Cairo and I think really they're missing out because there's a lot more to see I mean obviously you have famous things like the old souks the Khan Khalili but you have um you know wonderful museums as well the Coptic Museum is fantastic as well and people don't often get the time to go to that um the actual Coptic area um you've got wonderful mosques of course not just in Khan Khalili but some of the newer mosques I love there's one mosque that's actually called the police mosque because it was built by the police, which is on the way to the airport. It's my favorite mosque in Cairo, and it's, I don't know, 20 years old or something. But I, it, I think it's beautiful. It's stunning. Um, so I, I think it's important to kind of see, uh, you know, different parts of Egyptian life, plus also to see modern Egypt and how Egyptians live. Um, and that is very varied as well. You know, we have, you know, mega malls with indoor skiing and penguins and stuff. And then at the same time, you have wonderful souks that haven't changed in, you know, probably thousands, but at least hundreds of years. Um, and the food in Egypt is stunning, too. The food is fantastic. You know, vegetables and fruit actually taste like it should be. And uh, it's reasonably inexpensive as well. Um, if you go outside the hotels, you, you don't really pay that much. Well, that is a good tip. And I did, I realize now, miss a question yeah. on the format. But you know what it is, and we will get back to it. But let me just rapid fire throw some questions at you, and you give me your first response. So if I simply gave you the word Egypt, huh? what would your reaction be? Well, to me, it'd be the Valley of the Kings, I think. I think it's always going to be that because it's it's so ingrained. Uh, and um, actually, or just sitting looking at the Nile, you know, that kind of thing, uh, the, the sunrise and the sunset. I mean, I'm not a morning person, but I, just, I, I managed to even love the sunrise in Egypt. And also going to work. I mean, I remember once, you know, going across the Nile to work to the Valley of the Kings and we sat in the boat going there and Dr. Week says to me, well, oh, you know, you, we could be on the train going to Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And I was like, 
that is true. We could be squashed up with some sweaty commuters. <laughs> so even though it's like so 5 a.m. and like we don't want to talk, it's like you look around you and you have to think at those point how lucky you are. Yeah, absolutely. So does a particular sound or smell come to mind? Well, Egypt is very loud. It can be very loud. And actually, again, it's, 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 it is a country of extremes. So mm-hmm. you do, I mean, Cairo, you know, the, the noise of the city, the buzz of the city, that always comes to mind when I kind of fly into Cairo. There's always something going on. It's ne- it really is a 24-hour city. Um, if people say things like New York or London, they are not. They haven't even begun to think about 24 hours until you get to Cairo. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can have anything almost delivered in at any time of night and stuff i mean i remember when i first moved there and i was a knock at my neighbor's door or something at like two o'clock and i went outside because i could hear this guy knocking and he was delivering flowers you know at 2 a.m and i was like oh my gosh you know what is going on and uh you know he'd forgotten someone's birthday so he rang up the florist and they delivered at 2 a.m you know one of my neighbors used to get you know the shisha the the hooker pipe as some american they call it. Mm-hmm, she mm-hmm. would actually um, have that on a rope and she would pull it up to our balcony and stuff because her husband didn't want her to sit in a cafe because they thought it was common for women <laughs> to sit in the cafe. So she <laughs> would literally drag this thing up five floors to to her balcony. I guess and, you do what uh, you got to do. Uh, that always stuck in my mind. She was she's a very lovely woman. Um, actually, community. I think uh, I know it's not a sound or a smell in a way. Um, that's a big thing in Egypt and particularly where I lived in the downtown area it's a working class area and uh, it there was a real strong sense of community and I think if anything you uh, in terms of noise you people shouting your name or shouting hello to you people wanting you can't really walk down the street in Egypt without saying hello and asking how people are it's not like the like we are now how we've become I think mm-hmm. it's all how we were in the past um and the smells the same in a way they can be you know extreme but the smells of the uh the food i think i think that's the thing the food uh and the fruit um and things like that uh you know um some of the best food i've ever had you know it's completely different to the food i eat when i'm I here mm. and i think that's the thing i think i don't think you should try and, you know, people, when they go to Egypt, sometimes and they feel disappointed because they order, you know, um, something in a, a Western hotel like steak and chips mm-hmm. or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Don't have that. You know what I mean? Go to the, uh, you know, go to the shawarma place and go and have kibda, kebaba and kebabs and stuff. Do the things that Egypt does well. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying that you can't get a good steak. Of course you can, you know, and, and whatever. But. I think you just adjust your diet. So when I'm there, I eat different things than I do when I'm here. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, when you're in England, you go to the chippy. You've got to get your fish and chips and you eat meat pies and things like that. But when you're in Egypt, yeah, go eat the shawarma. Go get it done. But I have introduced my Egyptian family and and whatever to... um, Egyptian uh, to English ways of eating as well. So, um, a Sunday, oh, Nigel, what does that uh, even mean? <laughs> well, it's like this, now, like a roast meal that you would have here in England, like you know, a roast. I mean, they love chicken in Egypt, love chicken. Uh, meat is uh, you know, very popular, but you wouldn't have roast chicken and potatoes and and veg and all that on, on one plate like that. They tend to eat as well, almost like the Americans would say, this sort of um, uh, 
you know, the crock pot thing, the sort of lucky dip or whatever. Uh, lots of dishes arrive at different times in Egypt. You never really get everything at the same time. So it arrives, if you're at someone's house, things just start piling up on the table. Um, whereas here, we like to cook it all, serve it at the same time on one plate with everyone with their portion. But in Egypt, it's very much about, you know, like you've got to grab what you want, right? You've got to share it. You've got to pass the bread. You've got to pass these things around. So it's much more of a communal way of eating. Um, mm, that sounds like a lot of fun, but also really delicious. Yeah, it is. It's, I always put weight on when I go to Egypt. Oh. <laughs> There's no shame in that. That means it was a good trip. Yeah. But I still say that the, the best food in Egypt is in someone's home. It still is. The restaurants are good. There are some amazing new restaurants as well and people trying to recreate that home cooked uh taste as well but if you do people uh, often get invited to egyptian homes sometimes people are nervous about that travelers and things but egyptians love to take people to their house and try their mother's food or their wife's food and things and if you get the opportunity you have to do it because it is the best food you'll get while you're there so are there you know, cultural observations or politenesses that people should observe or maybe bring if they're invited to someone's home? Actually, no, in many ways, no one really expects anything, uh, you know. But if you want to take, you know, some sweets or something like that to have after the meal, uh, Egyptians have a very sweet tooth, very sweet tooth. And so um, it's, yeah, they, they want you to finish your plate. That's, I mean, literally finish everything. <laughs> um, they, uh, and in fact, they will keep bringing, actually, in some ways, actually, there's this old custom that if you finish everything, they'll keep bringing more food out. But um, so you kind of have to stop where there's something left, but not, <laughs> not, not everything. It's hospitality. It's just hospitality. It's ingrained. Um, and, you know, in, in the culture and people will ask you, um, you know, about your family, not just your family, but about your brothers, your sisters and how they're doing. And it's not just something that they automatically do. It's there's an interest there. And so if you see someone in the street, if you see a friend and you ask him and you don't ask how they are or you don't ask how their mother are, they think, well, you know, you're being rude and things, whatever. It's just like, oh, you don't have time for me. I think that's very important to Egyptians that you give them time. I think to anybody it is, obviously. Um, but I think it's very important in the culture that, you know, the, the biggest gift you can give someone is, is the time and, and listening to them and talking to them. Yeah, this is really good information because the people who listen to this podcast, like at least half, are travel agents or yeah. travel professionals. And we need to prepare our clients for the culture to be good tourists and to be good guests potentially in people's homes and to observe common niceties whether you know the person or not no exactly and, and the people someone said to me i mean when i first, very first went to egypt that um you know you almost get what you give out you know if you are hostile if you're aggressive you will get that back uh but egyptians love to smile they love to make you laugh they have such a good sense of humor you know there's a really strong sense of humor um and uh, they love slapstick kind of comedy and that Thing. So it's, um, you know, sometimes you'll see like a, a really stern policeman, you know, maybe looking at you or a security guard or something or whatever. And if you smile, they smile back. You know, I don't imagine many cops here smiling back, you know, um, but there they do. You know what I mean? Or um, So it's they are um, just 
Oh, God, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, we're just saying that community is important, taking your time is important, and especially coming from Western cultures, we just need to realize that we're on vacation. Slow it down. People appreciate your time. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you sh- I mean, you just, you, that's it. Take time. You are on holiday, and you don't need to see everything. You can come back. You know, I think often the tour itineraries uh, on the early trips that I took to Egypt, they pack in so much, literally exhausted. You cannot face another temple, right? You cannot deal with another market. And you're, I literally, I mean, I think the second trip I took, uh, there was a mutiny on the ship, you know, and, and the tourists were like, no, I'm not, we're not getting up. We're not going. We're not going. We are not going to another temple. And it's like, you know, we just like to stay on the boat for the day, right? And look at the Nile. Uh, so, and you don't need to get up. At, I mean, I know the, the itineraries are, uh, are geared towards because it's, it's hot weather and, and, and everything. So they tend to be very early, the itineraries, you know, um, getting people up at six and seven and getting to the temples as soon as possible on the sites. But in the winter, you don't need to do that. There's no adjustment. It's the same itinerary as if they were doing it in June and they were doing it in December. Um, and often if you visit those sites in the afternoon, if you're an independent traveler and you're going on your own, there'll be no one there because the tour groups only go in the mornings. Yes, yeah, so this is interesting. And you might agree with this, but London might be different. But definitely in Oxford, maybe other university towns, the mornings are the slow times. Like before 9 a.m., you are not getting a cup of coffee in town. So if you go to the tourist attractions right when they open at 9, you may be the only people there. And so that's when we like to go. Do you find that also? Oh, no, true. They're the English. We do like our lion. That's so funny. I love that <laughs> expression, a lion. We've adopted that, that, that for people who don't know is sleeping in. Complete this. It makes me happy when I see tourists participate in... Well, it would be, I have to be, I think, sitting down with Egyptians having a cup of tea. You know, the thing is, you go in every shop and they, the shopkeeper does ask you to have a cup of tea. And a lot of people say no. And they think, oh, you know, I have to buy something. Actually, it doesn't really matter. They just actually are quite interested in you. They want to know about you. If you want to buy something, buy something. But they, it's not that they're not going to lock you in the shop, you know. Um, have a cup of tea. Take the time. I love it when I see people doing that because you see them laughing and they're joking together and it breaks down those, you know, cultural barriers. Um, even though I don't even like tea. No, I'm British and I don't like tea. Maybe you're not British. Yeah, I, I do drink tea in Egypt, but I drink it full of mint. Shainana, they call it. And I love I love mint, so I can kind of force the tea down because it's full of mint. Nigel, great tip. I mean, if it's not about the people, which traveling should ultimately be about the local people and investing in them and connecting with them because they built the places, they built the things. It needs to be about them. And so simply drinking the tea is an act of doing that. This is like the best tip. Thank you so much. And Egypt, you know, I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but, and, and the ministry and different people, you know, tend to repeat this, but Egypt is an incredibly safe country mm. uh, for foreigners. Great to uh, know. You know, there's very little crime, street crime, that kind of thing. I mean, I'm not saying that people don't get robbed or whatever, but if you compare it, you know, to, to Western cities and stuff. Um, so, you know, I 
walk through Cairo at all times of day and night, and I never felt that um, uh, unsafe. There were parts of London I certainly wouldn't walk through at a certain type of night, uh, time at night and stuff. And, you know, you are relatively safe, I would say, and I think so explore and find places and find people. And if someone invites you into their shop or their home, uh, you know, obviously – be wary but i in the you know in most cases you're perfectly fine you know obviously trust your own judgment mm, it's good to know that this is a cultural norm so thank you for oh, the insight it's, it's totally fine yeah and it's you know um you get to always get to meet mm. everybody's family sounds wonderful let's go with this thought completion then it makes my blood boil when i see tourists do well, cl- climbing on the pyramids and things like that, I, that really, really uh, pisses me off. You know, climbing on pyramids, climbing inside sarcophagus and things like this in, inside the Great Pyramid. Actually, they even do that in the British Museum, and I tell people off there when they do it as well. Um, it, yeah, it's so disrespectful. And you wouldn't go into a church and start lying on the altar, right, or something. And, you know, they know a certain way they're meant to behave in the mosque and things like that as well. So I think this, maybe it's education, maybe there needs to be more information about how to behave at sites and things like that. But certainly things like climbing on the pyramid, it does say all over it, you're not allowed to climb. Um, And you think, oh, what harm can it do? You know, but actually over hundreds and hundreds of years of lots of people climbing, it, it has caused damage. And also, actually, it's not safe for them to be climbing as well. These are very tall structures, and people have been injured. I'm not sure if they've died, but they've definitely been hurt um, climbing the pyramid. Um, so, yeah, it's not it's not advisable for, for many reasons. Um, so that really makes me angry. And also, if I you know see tourists that um, are rude to Egyptians, you know what I mean? I mean, I know... In many places you go to on holiday, sometimes, you know, you don't want to be asked to buy yet another carpet. You don't want to be asked and to, if you want another cup of tea. But And it's hot and people get tired and things like that. But, you know, try and understand that actually the situation they're in um, and uh, they may be hassling you to, to buy something. But actually, it's it's if they don't sell something that day, they probably don't eat that night. Oh, Nigel, that's hard to take in, but good to hear. Thank you for that perspective. So we've covered a lot of ground so far in this interview, and this next question will be probably hard to answer because the history uh, of Egypt has such a longevity. We won't be able to probably nail it down exactly, but if you had to give someone advice as to the cultural attractions or museums that would give them the best insight and whole view of Egypt's culture what would you recommend? You have to go to see the Giza pyramids and stuff. You have to see the Great Pyramid. I think that's, you know, essential. But I think why not while you're there? We are, I always encourage people and, and take visitors um, to places like Saqqara and Dashur, where pyramids can be seen actually more in, a, in the landscape that they would have been in. Um, actually, crazily, with a group of friends once, we decided to try and see the pyramids in chronological order. Oh my gosh, uh, how did you even get that lots done? Lots and lots of back to forth in cars and, and actually not looking out the side of the window because it would have ruined it because you looked at one uh, in the wrong order because they're not, they didn't move from site to site, you know what I mean? It, it, it's not, um, but when you see them in chronological order, it does actually make sense. You can actually see the changes in technique and building and, and this kind of thing. And it does 
sort of explain what they were doing, particularly if you start with, you know, proto pyramids or, or step pyramids, um, you can understand it's not something that they just decided one day to build a pyramid, right? Uh, they did work at it and they did change the design and, and everything. And there's even ones that went wrong. So you get to see the ones that went wrong. Huh. Um, the bent pyramid, <laughs> which I mean, the ancient Egyptians did not call the bent pyramid, but we call it the bent pyramid. So um, there are mistakes. And I think so seeing it, um, you know, in different ways is, is important. You'd have to go to the Cairo Museum, of course, the Egyptian Museum in Tahrir. Um, that is obviously the world's, you know, largest collection of Egyptian antiquities. Um, it's where Tutankhamun's treasures are. It's where the royal mummies are. So you can't miss that. If you can only go to one museum, you have to go to that. Um, but they are now building another museum, which is due to open next year or, or possibly the year after. And it's called the Grand Egyptian Museum, or GEM for short. And it's going to be the largest museum in the world. Oh, my. For a single, I think they've now added for a single culture. So I'm not. I, maybe there is a bigger museum somewhere that's on multiple cultures. But it's huge. It's phenomenal. I think that one of the statistics was going around that it's bigger than the Smithsonian's put together. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it, it, it's insane. It's But it's going to cover... I be, it's actually not going to cover all of Egyptian history, which I thought was a, a, a bit of a disappointment. It's going to cover pharaonic history only. There was a plan for another museum called Nemec, the National Museum of Egyptian Civilization. And that's actually opened, uh, partly opened, but it's it's not fully fitted out. And that was meant to show the sort of different eras of Egyptian history and give you an overview. And I still think that's a good idea, but I think maybe that should have been in the other one. But there you go. Politics of museums. And um, But when it opens, this museum, it will have the entire Tutankhamun collection in one place for the first time and everything, almost everything on display, because at the moment you don't see the majority of the objects um, apparently, Are some of them here in England? Is that what's at Highclere Castle? No, they've got a few little bits and pieces, but they've got nothing really that important. They did send some bits back that apparently... Oh, that's good. ...that Howard Carter had, I don't know, helped himself to, um, or had uh, borrowed for a while. Um but there are mainly the pieces that are outside of Egypt are actually on loan. They're on travel on these on these exhibitions. I believe that it, Australia is the last stop for that next year. And uh, then it allegedly is not going to travel again. So I think that's one of the ideas to try and get people to go is by saying, well, that collection will not be seen outside of Egypt. Um, certainly certain objects like is uh, the so-called death mask, everything, that can't travel anyway. That's forbidden by law. Um, Actually, I heard recently that technically the law states that only objects that are not unique can travel, which would really mean that nothing could travel. Right. They're all pretty I mean, unique. there was no standardization. Uh, Everything was made individually, one by one. Yeah. And you get things like uh, Yushabtis, you know, whatever, the, the servants for the afterlife and things. But, I mean, even they all look different. Uh, I mean, they all look a bit like Tut, but they all look different. I mean, it's surrounded by, a, you know, a hundred servants all looking like you must have been rather creepy um but you know i think there was a lot of the pharaohs there was a lot of self-love going on um <laughs> they so were self-caring this is the first example yeah, of self-care yeah i suppose if you you know you think i'm good you think oh i'm very good looking i'll you know make my servants look like me um 
Oh my goodness, actually, that's a little weird. I, I, as an anecdote, I worked in Harrods a very long time ago uh, when I was an accountant, and Mohammed Al Fayed, uh, the owner of Harrods at the time, is Egyptian and quite the pharaoh in the making. Um, <laughs> he turned a whole section of Harrods into a bit called the Egyptian Hall, I think mm. it's called, and it's got. Uh, don't ask me how they're called pharaonic escalators and um there's basically sphinxes on the wall and uh you know and and mummy cases all you know reproduction stuff Mm -hmm. um but the sphinxes on the walls uh and everything they look like him (laughs) that is really interesting i don't think he'll ever listen to this but I've never heard of something like that. Well, he claimed they didn't. He claimed they were copied from an ancient Egyptian um, uh, sphinx, and they don't. They weren't his face. But it's pretty obvious. I mean, it was actually quite creepy when you worked there because it was like <laughs> almost like the boss was watching you. Um, <laughs> and he you was. upstairs. Uh, now let me so circle yeah, back I, for a second. You have a connection to the King Tut exhibit. Am I correct about this? Tell me about you dusting Tut or something like this. Oh, no, that's not, that's the real Tutankhamun, not the exhibition. So, yeah, my dusted Tut story um, is that when I was working in the Valley of the Kings, um, I, one day I was in his tomb, in Tutankhamun's tomb, sat there, and I, I was monitoring tourists, I think. I think I was counting tourists or something like that. Something, I was uh, uh, monitoring tourist behavior. And I, we would do a couple of hours each day in different tombs, you know, to see how people behaved and mm-hmm. con- and take down the numbers and stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, the cleaning team came in and they were taking the glass off the case and uh, they were going to dust him mm-hmm. and hoover him, uh, the, the coffin, not, him, not the body, the coffin. Yeah. And um, I said, oh, what are you doing? Foolishly, a person with a hoover <laughs> in their hand, what are they going to do? <laughs> they said, well, we're going to hoover. And I was like, oh, um, can I do it? And they were like, oh, so you, like, you just want to do, you know, you want to do my job? Okay, of course you can do it. I'll sure. have a cup of tea. Have at so it. So while they had a cup of tea, I hoovered him uh, very, very lightly. I was too scared to put the hoover even anywhere near <laughs> the, the coffin. Uh, That's incredible. What a unique <laughs> and unusual story. I always thought it would be good on like, what's my line or something, right? You know, whatever. One of those shows where you have to, you know, you've got a secret. Yes, or, like three uh, truths know. and a lie or one of those <laughs> yeah. games. <laughs> yeah, did you dust? And I was, as I said, I was too, I mean, I took the duster in the end and did a bit of dusting because um, I dusted the glass. But um, I always thought, yeah, it was, good I, to be I, thorough. it was a really weird moment. <laughs> oh, man. That's great. That's a good story. So we've hit on just to circle back, we've hit on some of the museums. Are there any cultural attractions we should talk about as must-sees? Um, so, yeah, pyramids, museums, obviously. Um, I, I think, obviously, you see, should see the natural world. I, I think Sinai is, is particularly um, amazing for that, for the natural environment. Mm-hmm. Um, the mountains, you know, it's, it's very popular with people. Um, obviously, to see the Red Sea and to see the corals uh, uh, and that kind of thing. Um, the Nile, I mean, the Nile is so beautiful. I mean, it really is. I don't think any picture or any video mm-hmm. ever really gets it over how beautiful the river is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've done one of my favorite things ever to do, and I, I, I haven't done it for years, is to take a felucca, which is the traditional sailing boat, mm-hmm. and you and sail from Aswan uh, as the river flows, because the river flows the wrong way, if you know what I mean. It's one of the only rivers in the world that, yes. fall, that flows 
from south to north. Yes. And you sail up to Luxor. It takes a couple of days, two or three days. Mm. You just go actually with the wind, oh. um, not a powered boat. And um, when you wake up in the morning, you know, the guy's got the coffee on, the, the captain, and uh, it's, you know, 5 or 6 a.m. or whatever mm. it is, and the sun's rising. Um, oh, it, it's amazing. You could be back in Pharaonic Egypt, you know. It really is um, you look out across the fields, the farmers, uh, uh, you know, tending their flock or whatever, or uh, dealing with the um, uh, products, uh, and as it is, and people going by with donkeys. And it, rural Egypt, I think that is it's something to see, and that is changing so quickly. Oh, sure. See, yep. um, you know, let more and more people are coming off the land and going into. Um, manufacturing and service industries and different things and, mm -hmm. and the towns and the way of life are changing mm -hmm. so but you can still see something that does take you way back you know so I think to do something like that um, is is wonderful I mean even on a cruise boat it's not the same mm -hmm. but um, you know I know a lot of people love going on those cruise boats and yes. it is a wonderful way to see Egypt yes. and you see a lot that way very comfortable yes it just reminds me of my study abroad in Kenya for four or five months in that everyone said, oh, my gosh, take this time to go to Europe. Europe's amazing. But that's exactly why I wanted to go to Kenya, because I wanted to see it before, you know, it got very westernized and before it changed. And it's changing. I haven't gotten back there. But I would like to see, you know, the, the evolution of Kenya. And I'd love to see Egypt as it is now before it gets totally westernized. And this boat trip seems like a good way no. and to you do that. Do it. Some people do it luxury. There's kind of, kind of, you know, there are now traditional the sailing boats that have, you know, sort of almost bedrooms and things and things. But the way I've always done it is like a group of friends and, uh, you know, you just literally they put planks across the deck and put blankets and cushions down to sleep on, take a sleeping bag. Mm -hmm. And at first people go, oh, my God, where's the toilet? You know, <laughs> where's the shower? And it's like, okay, there isn't one. And they're like, oh, no, I can't do this. I can't, mm -hmm. I can't. Mm -hmm. And then three hours in, you know, and they're reading their book and the, all you can hear is the, the water going past the boat. Mm -hmm. and, and they're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. This is bliss. You know? So how are you taking care uh, of that bathroom situation then? Are you going for a swim? You are going for a swim. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, or you're going in a field to fertilize it. <laughs> uh, whatever but yeah i mean isn't that just covid life right now that's standard operating procedure it's fine everybody's doing that no and it, the thing is that it's it's only for a couple of days of your life right you can't have a sh if you don't want to get in the nile and whatever then it's a couple, few days and you can't have a shower then then fine it's okay you know um actually the the captain would put the if for some that didn't want to go in the nile he would put the bucket in and just throw a bucket of water over them and uh but and i don't even swim i can barely swim i can swim a tiny bit but i can't swim but i I still, it was quite warm when we did it last time. And so you just want to get in, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. and, um, and in the evenings, you pull along, you stop at a village and, uh, you know, and get some provisions and then have a little fire and, uh, you know, sit around and, and you can see the stars. That's the other thing, actually. That's oh, yes. particularly amazing in Egypt, in rural Egypt, because the stars feel like they're among you. Oh, yes. You know? That sounds they wonderful. touch them, they're so close. Mm. Uh, um, and even where I am now, up in the lake district and stuff, we've got light pollution and stuff, and we don't really mm. get that. Um, maybe it's actually maybe the um, 
astronomers would know. Maybe something to do with, like, I don't know where we are in the Earth that you can see stars better or something. I don't know. Mm. Um, but it's amazing there. I love Particularly that. amazing. I would love to see that. So then I have a new question for you that I've been asking guests lately. And it's about um, exhibits that may not be the real deal in the sense that in Philadelphia we have a contested tourist destination, which is the Betsy Ross House, as to whether or not that family actually had connections mm-hmm. to the American flag or if they were just cash strapped and trying to create a tourist attraction to have some extra income. Is there anything like that you should warn us about? There is a lot of what you call, um, they call papyrus factories or carpet factories um, um, or schools. And uh, not schools, not not factories. Sometimes they say it's a factory slash school slash college. And you go in and there's a bit of theater where someone will be working on on a loom um, or someone will be uh, building a pot or something. Now, there are real ones. Don't get me wrong. There is a lot of traditional um, artifacts. Um, arti- no, not artifacts. What's it called? Uh, traditional mm-hmm. artisans. Yeah. And there are mm-hmm. areas now set up for it, particularly in the Fayoum. One of my friends, uh, he's involved in a project in the Fayoum. The, potter, the potters of Fayoum, they're famous. Okay. So there are, you can definitely go to real authentic um, artisan areas where you can get pottery, you can get papyrus, you can get rugs. But there is also these commercial ones mm. that tend to be set up for literally, as I say, it's a bit of theatre, you know, it's not sure. for real. Mm-hmm. They take in busloads of tourists and they're buying Chinese papyrus, you know, oh. I mean, that's just so shocking that there's papyrus on sale from China, yeah. you know. Uh, that oh, That is so annoying. It's just crazy. Because um, there used to be, apparently in Cairo, you know, up until the 70s, 80s even, I believe, there were factories that made all these reproduction, uh, you know, papyrus and statues mm-hmm. and everything. But mm-hmm. then it became cheaper just to order them from China. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the things the tourists are buying are not not helping the Egyptians at all. No, and that's um, what they hope They're to already do. helping a few middlemen who are ordering them from China. So try and obviously mm-hmm. find out those artisan places. And they do exist. And I'm sure there are like websites that, um, you know, give information on, on where to go. Mm-hmm. The Ministry of Antiquities actually has a replica division. They do some beautiful replicas. Um, and the money goes back to the, uh, conserving the sites. Yes. Um, so there, And there's a lot of sort of pottery areas and different things like that. So they can be found but, yeah, there's a lot of really tacky ones as well. Sure. No, Nigel, this is getting long, and I've answered, actually, well, you've answered all of my questions uh-huh. in the previous answer, so I'm going to just do away with the rest of my questions. But you have a project coming up, which is relevant to listeners of this podcast, some of which are tour guides. And I want to give you an opportunity to speak about that because it's a neat opportunity, and I want to, you know, put people in front of you if I can. Yeah, it's actually, we have a really interesting uh, project currently, and it's working with a company called Icon that um, develops um, machines, uh, exercise machines, rowing machines and and bicycles and and treadmills. Um, iFit, I think, is their brand of the machine. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, on these machines, they show videos um, of different locations. So while you're running and, and rowing and whatever, you can visit the place. And for many years, they had um, them just films and some of them they had with athletes, you know, telling you about exercise and things. Mm -hmm. But then they decided they'd like to have experts or people who 
uh, a local expert, a local guide to tell someone about an area. Some, mm -hmm. uh, the way they summed it up to us is that they want, you know, me to tell the world about the Valley of the Kings. You know what I mean? They want someone right. who's sort of embedded within a place yes. to explain about that place and why that place is really special to them and why the person watching the video um, can learn about it but can visit the place. So not look, what we're really looking for is essentially someone who can, you've got to be able to, um, and I know this sounds bizarre, but you've got to be able to walk and talk, definitely. It, mm -hmm. It's an active thing. So the, the films are a short a walks up to 45 minutes. Okay. Uh, walking or cycling, actually. Mm -hmm. They're quite keen oh. on cycle tours as well. Okay. Now, on the cycle tours, obviously, you would stop the bicycle and you would talk. You wouldn't be expected okay, to keep walking and cycling. That sounds challenging. Uh, but on the walking ones, you literally keep walking and talking mm -hmm. um, through an area. So you have to be reasonably fit. I wouldn't say you have to be, you know, an athlete. But they like to film them in one cut, as it's called. So essentially, they want you to be able to, you know, keep that information flowing mm -hmm. uh, for that length of time. Mm -hmm. So as I said, they're looking for you don't need to be, you know, a doctor of archaeology or something like this or have that um study on that particular area you may be it may be somewhere you live uh it could be somewhere you work okay um i was thinking of also doing maybe something like on hadrian's wall because i live oh, yes. very close to hadrian's wall here in cumbria oh, yes i love it i mean it's an amazing place um so that's what they're looking for they're looking for individuals who have a connection with a place so we don't want someone to say suggest i don't know six places because mm -hmm. that we're really looking for the, the two or three places that you know really well, mm -hmm. that you love and that you want to share with the rest of the world, right? Mm -hmm. You're enthusiastic about it. Of course. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be there now, okay? So it could be somewhere that you used to work or somewhere you used to live because mm -hmm. we can get you there. Hopefully, when the travel restrictions, you know, lift and things, that we can, we can get you there yes. to do it. Um, they've done shoots recently um in jordan in egypt um in uh easter island um they're looking at europe at the moment so really mm -hmm. actually what we've been casting for is to look at uh, places in europe because they'd like to do a tour of europe and yes. get as many places in and um we've had some really good suggestions from people uh, of, of places if you can do it by bicycle that's great if you just want to do a walking tour okay. that's great um, but what the client wants, normally what we do for our individual castings is we submit a video of the person either talking about themselves and, mm -hmm. and, and their work, their expertise, mm -hmm. or we put together what's called a showreel, which is clips of them on previous TV shows. Mm -hmm. Now, for mm -hmm. this, because it's, it's a little bit different, um, the client would like to see a video of you walking and talking and describing okay. a place so they can understand uh, what you would be like in the end product. Yeah, it makes now, sense. Now, people will have said to us, oh, well, I'm not in York at the moment. I'm not in Egypt at the moment. I'm not where I want to do the film. Sure. That's okay. You can do the little mini audition film. You can do that in your garden or wherever. Um, just we really want an idea of how you would present. Yes. Um, okay. So, you know, don't be afraid of uh, the video doesn't need to be in the location that you suggest. Okay, everybody. Uh, Go yeah, for it. and it's it's um it's all paid, of course. All uh, you will Perfect. be paid for your time. The shoots are normally about a week, mm -hmm. so there's quite a few. That they're, they're not like single days. These things, or they could be two or three days in some cases. Maybe for the European shoots, mm -hmm. uh, because it'll be uh, smaller shoots. Okay. Um, but we're looking 
you know, um, to have people do various European locations. It doesn't need to be um, a really well-known site either. Mm -hmm. That's the thing, because the the idea is that, you know, someone's on the bicycle in the gym and they think, oh, you know, um, oh, let's see what's in um, Antwerp. And then they might go and see what, let's see what's in uh, Minturo, which is the place a friend of mine lives, but no Mm -hmm. one knows it, right? It's a gorgeous place in Italy, but Mm -hmm. no one really knows it. But you might think, oh, where's that? I've never heard of it. I'd like to find out what's in Minturo, right? Yeah, that sounds good to me. And then you get through your workout and you don't even know because you were just engaged the whole time. I love this idea. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, the boredom threshold of people in the gym. But if you've got this, you know, local expert who's nutty about Adrian's Wall or the Valley of the Kings (laughs) or something uh, who's telling you all about it, then suddenly you've done 45 minutes workout and you didn't notice, right? Yeah, exactly. And a lot of people in the travel industry are looking for extra or additional things to do right now. So I think this is perfect. I just wanted to make sure we included that, so I'm glad we did. Yeah, that, that would be fantastic. Yeah, please send them in. The The key, as I said, is that you've got to really know the place like the back of your hand. You've got to do this, uh, you know, off spec. You can't, uh, okay, you can research for it and things like that, but it, it's better if you have a passion for, for the place uh, and that'll come across. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. send in your ideas and, uh, you know, we'll we'll put them forward to the client. Great. I mean, we're at an hour, so we have some great information captured, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to give (laughs) you a chance to talk about past preservers or yourself or anything else you want to include before we close out the episode today. Cool. Um, Well, hopefully, I mean, if people want to know anything more about past preservers, obviously take a look at our website. We do have lots of different opportunities. It's not all TV work either. So uh, do sign up and you'll get our jobs bulletin and and that kind of thing. Um, In terms of Egypt, I mean, try and go there as soon as you can. I think the the Egyptians need you to go. Um, As soon as it's safe to go, then go. Um, You're going to get a different perspective of the culture uh, and the country now with less people. I mean, it's the same for everywhere, I suppose. But I'm hoping to go back in October uh, as I miss my family there and stuff. So I, I really want to get back there. Um, and it, it will be different. It will feel different. I think everywhere will feel different. But uh, you'll have a unique opportunity to see the country uh, without millions of other people. Yeah, that sounds really appealing. And I'm all about tourism for good. So if we can put some tourism dollars to Egypt, let's do that. Travel advisors, please send people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, countries like Egypt, uh, tourism is incredibly important to to the economy. And uh, a lot of people, you know, were already suffering there. And this is, you know, the COVID situation has made it worse. Just when things were picking up, really, for the tourism there. So, um, you know, and Egypt needs independent tourism. It really does need independent uh, people to go who spend more money, you know, um, mass tourism, we could go on for another hour about that, but mass tourism, you know, is not really the uh, the thing that's needed at the moment. They need a, a sort of high spending individuals really to go. Yes, well, there are a number of luxury travel advisors yeah. that listen to this, and even just regular travel advisors. Send your guests to Egypt. Thank you, Nigel, for coming on the program today. I appreciate your time. I was great fun. I always love to talk about Egypt, and especially when I'm missing it so much. Mm-hmm. Someone actually on Twitter yesterday, a friend of mine, um, a, a journalist, posted pictures of the mangoes that are now ready. Mm-hmm. You will never, ever eat mangoes like you will eat in Egypt. They mm-hmm. are unbelievable. And there are so many varieties. I remember 
uh, forcing my son to stop and buy every single variety of mango because I wanted to try them. <laughs> and they're really very different. Oh, You'd be surprised that a mango can be different. But yeah, there's lots and lots of different kinds mm. um, of varieties. And I've tried, I can't eat them outside of Egypt now. Okay. I'm ruining that because they just don't taste the same. Oh, you're spoiled. Thanks for your tips on mangoes and for joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate <laughs> your time. And hopefully before too long, we can do this again sometime. Wonderful. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. This is Megan Chapa of the Travel Radio Podcast. Say good night. You're listening to a Trav Market Media Network podcast, a podcast designed for you, the travel professional. Is there something you would like to hear or do you have feedback? Please write to us at podcasts at travmarketmedia.com. Again, that's podcasts with an S at travmarketmedia.com.